Good morning to everyone and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, November 12, 2023. The share ID numbers for Friday, November 10th, 2023 are the following. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study Meeting share ID number is 20823. 20,823. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study, the share ID number is 20824-20,824. This morning, A Vision for You presents Steps 6 and 7, What Separates the Men from the Boys. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written as a set of steps, a standard by which an individual can recover from the disease of alcoholism, and in our case, compulsive overeating. Overeaters Anonymous and A Vision for You are patterned after this standard. We come together to offer support to each other following the 12 steps of this program of recovery. Way up on step six, which says, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. We discover that there are barriers in our personality and our behavior that block us from relationship with everything. Step seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. We are now practicing the behavior of being right-sized. We are no longer seeking to be too big nor too small, asking power to transform us. In steps six and seven, we're taking everything that has and uncovered everything and discovered from step four and five and putting it into action. Though this can be tough, Step six and seven, at the least, require deep introspection and honesty. They are steps that we take for the rest of our lives, but they are also one of the main ways that we can change behaviors permanently and become a different, better person. Through steps four and five, we discover the truth about the kind of person we are, or at least the kind of person we act like. People are always People are not always able to see themselves as they are, usually because we judge ourselves by our intentions. Why is step six so crucial in the recovery journey? Well, without readiness to change, it's hard to make any significant progress. These defects have been hindering our growth and happiness. They've caused us and the people around us harm, sometimes immense amount of harm. If we stay abstinent, but continue to act the same as we have as a compulsive overeater, then the people around us will wonder why bother staying abstinent at all. It can be hard to change or even to want to change, but it's hard to ignore the truth once seen, the cast out of the bag now, so to say. We know the dark character traits, we've seen them now, they've been discovered. We are going to notice when they're active. Suffering is the name of that game, noticing them and not having any change. Trying to pretend like they don't exist isn't going to help or make them go away. The good news here is that these character defects are not permanent. You can do something about them. If we were defined by our past actions or choices, there'd be no point in the steps. The entire point is to change how we think, how we feel, and how we act. If we are willing to change and willing to try, then we are ready and all, we are already moving in the right direction. Step seven is all about seeking humility, humbly asking our higher power to remove our shortcomings with a, with a seven-step prayer. 
It is where the surrender of old character defects is handed over to a power greater than ourselves. Off with the old and on with the new. This is where we'll see the separation. We realize quickly that defective characters just do not disappear because a seven-step prayer has been said. They had become a regular way of life for us. Most will take time and effort on top of prayer to be rid of. We learn that the big book says those that were developed over a lifetime do not vanish in a twinkling. Those that we developed over our life, oddly, we've grown accustomed to, to them and the miserable suffering that goes along with them. But change is possible. A better, healthier life is within our, within our reach. That's the reason for hope. We, do not, we are not doomed to continue to act it out, and we are still worthy of love, respect, and happiness, no matter how far down we have gone. Our presentation today will focus on step six and seven and how we grow from childlike behavior and we now and how we now show up in our lives and our willingness to surrender it all. What is that which separates us? Joining us this morning, bringing the big book instructions to life on step six and seven is Crystal R. Crystal is from Ontario, Canada and is a recovered compulsive overeating overeater living these steps daily. As a teacher and a member of OA and a vision for you, she will share her experience and wisdom with us this morning or wherever you are in the world. Welcome to the line this morning, Crystal. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me, Melanie? Loud and clear. Good morning to you. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Crystal R., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Toronto, Canada. I'm going to jump right in. So, um, you know, before I'll start by just qualifying. Uh, Before I came into program, before recovery, I was about over 250 pounds. And that was the last time I was weighed by my doctor. So I was over 250 pounds and at only less than five feet tall that I was, I was severely overweight. I, um, was in the ER more times than anyone my age should ever really be in the ER. I came into program when I was 31 years old. I, my disease had caused such a severe anemia in me that there were days where I could barely take in like three breaths that went all the way into my lungs. It was terrifying. And yet that didn't make one bit of difference as to how much food I would eat. Food was never loud for me. Um, it didn't need to be. It was just a quiet whisper. By the time I came into program, I didn't fight. I had stopped fighting the food a long time ago. I had spent my whole life, you know, uh, on diets. And uh, ever since I was maybe eight years old, I, something clicked in me that realized food did something for me that didn't do for other people. And I used every ounce of it that I could. But by the time I came into program, there were no more diets. There were no more promises. I never woke up Monday morning saying, this is the Monday that I'm going to get it all together and, and lose the weight or stop eating by any means it was I had just decided I was going to binge on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And if anyone got in the middle of that, they didn't stay in my life for very long. The food was just a quiet whisper. Every single day I would be driving home from work and there would just be this soft voice that just be like, you know, it'd be great. We could stop it and then burger cake. And then et cetera, et cetera. I had just like a whole little lineup of fast food restaurants. That I would uh, that I would make stop that and then binge the night away, you know, pass out around 4 a.m., be late to work the next morning and start the whole thing all over again. I had no real relationships. 
you can't really have relationships with people when you spend 99% of your life on the side of your couch with your hand in a crinkly bag. You know, I, and any relationships I did have with people that I had no choice to be in my life, um, they weren't relationships, they were hostages. There was a threat over every single one of them. Keep me safe or I will self-destruct. Make me feel comfortable or I will self-destruct. That's not a relationship. I was terrified of everything. I don't know how it's possible to be a little three-year-old girl sitting inside a 30-year-old body, but that's even tell you what I was frightened of. I was fear was just like the hum. It was like the background music of my life. I was afraid of things happening and not happening. That things would be good and that things would be bad. That I would get what I want. That I wouldn't get what I want. Everything frightened me. And in, and in terms of spirituality, I was probably the most religious person you would ever meet. Uh, at 30 years old, all I just wanted to do was become a nun. That's all I wanted. I would hang out with these nuns in Toronto as often as I could, and I was hoped that one day they'd just forget to send me home, and I'd just wear the, wear the same dress as them and just be one of them, and just, you know, they, they, I'd just have family to be with, you know? And, um, and if I was around them, then, um, then I'd definitely be, be good with God, you know? That's, that's kind of the 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 religiousness that I lived with. And when I came into program, I realized that in reality, I actually had no relationship with God. I talked about this God a lot. I read about this God a lot. I prayed to this God a lot. I even like taught other people about this God a lot, but I actually had no relationship with this God. In fact, the only God in my life was me. And I was a terrifying God, horrible, very small, very powerless, very exacting, remembered every mistake I ever made, and always told me horrible things about myself. So I was a horrible God. So what happened was I found a way. I realized that I have a problem. That I, and the prob- They told me, first of all, what the problem was, because nobody ever knew what was wrong with me, that I had an allergy of the body, that if I put even one piece of my alcoholic foods in me, or, or alcoholic behaviors or quantities in me, it would trigger a phenomenon of craving. And even if I do put those foods down, I have a twist of the mind that will tell me, you can pick it up again. You can have one more. It won't do, even though it it burned you thousands of times before, this time it won't. I also learned what the root cause of my problem was. It was my self-centeredness. The way I like to think of it is, I have two major beliefs that I live my life in. Everything's about me and everything is on me. And those two beliefs are not livable. No wonder I needed an anesthetic to survive. So once I came into OA and I found these things out, I got a sponsor and I put down all the food, all the food behaviors and all the food quantities. And when I put down all those three things, anything that gave me an alcoholic effect, and then I started working, well, then I needed something because now there's nothing between me and life. So then I started working the steps and the tools, everything, all of it. Um, through the vision, uh, through vision for you and the big book, and that's when recovery started to happen. I just did what I was told. I didn't question it. There probably wasn't a single thing that was suggested to me in program by my sponsor or recovered fellows, where the moment it was suggested, I thought, "Oh, that's a great idea. Oh, I should totally do that." Pretty much everything I was told, my first thought was either that's ridiculous. Like they just, they don't understand my culture. They don't understand me. They don't understand my life. That would never work for me. Or that's stupid. Like, obviously I can do it this way, you know, or 
that's a great idea. But you know what? I think I, I just can't do it today because today I have this appointment and tomorrow is just a perfect day for me to start to do that. But when I put all that stuff aside and I fired the little lawyer that's been sitting in my head, um, you know, criticizing and critiquing everything that was told to me in a way, and I just did what I was told, then recovery started to happen. And today I am in a normal body. I don't know exactly how much weight I've lost. I know it's over 100 pounds. What I do know is that this year, because I was traveling internationally, I had to get a new passport because my picture on my passport's not recognizable anymore. And Passport Canada required me to write a letter to attest to the fact that I am the same person on my passport. So I feel like that's pretty significant. I'm an adult person today. I, I do my taxes, I, I take out the garbage, I cook my meals, I, I have a shower every day. These are not things that I knew how to do or did before. And every day I'm less afraid than the day before. I'm in real relationships today. You know, just even just three years ago, before I walked into my, you know, my family's home, my mom, dad, and my sister, they were the stars of my uh, step four inventory. Before I walked into their home, I would do a fair inventory. And a minute after I walked out of their home, I would do a resentment inventory. Like I could barely be around them for 10 minutes without accumulating some kind of fear or resentment or guilt or anger or whatever it was. And today, I'm at peace around them. They can't hurt me. And I know they don't want to hurt me. I just, they're my loving family and I love them. And I can just be myself around them and be free around them. And today, uh, just actually almost four months ago, I got married and I really, really believed that I was going to be one of those people that never, ever, ever, you know, got to have romantic love. And today I get to be married to a wonderful husband and I get to be a recovered wife to him, which is the greatest gift. And spiritually, I have a real God today. I am no longer God. Thank you, God, because I was just, I just fired myself from that job and thank goodness because it's, it's, I don't ever want to have that job. Today, God for me, I call God Papa, and I am his beloved daughter. And I never have to be afraid of him. I never have to hide from him or lie to him. I can always just be myself and tell him what's going on with me and know that he's got it. All of this came through the grace of working the steps thoroughly and fearlessly, applying them to every aspect of my life. You know, I once heard a speaker say this, and it really stuck with me. They said the way to work the steps is to add one word to them, to add the word actually. We actually admitted we were powerless over our food, that our lives had become unmanageable. We actually came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the two steps that I found the hardest to add the word actually to was step six and seven. So to actually be entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character and actually humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. You know, initially when I looked at it, I'm like, really, this, these steps should be easy. There are only two little paragraphs in the big book. You know, but when you open up the AA 12 and 12, on page 63, it says, under step six, this is the step that separates the men from the boys. Uh, this uh, so declares a well-loved clergyman who happens to be one of AA's greatest friends. And he goes on to say, any person capable of enough willingness and honesty to try repeatedly step six on all his faults without any reservation whatsoever has indeed come a long way spiritually and is therefore entitled to be called a man who is sincerely trying to grow in the image and likeness of his own creator. And I came to find out 
why this was such a hard step. It really, I thought it was going to be really, really quick and really easy, but it was not. So first of all, I need to get to step six. And that meant doing a thorough and fearless step four and step five. So at the end of step four, what was really important was what I needed to come to is not just write the whole story of my life. What I needed to come to at the step four is I am the problem. Like the problem cannot be the 300 other people I've come into contact with in my life. If I have a resentment or guilt or fear related to every single person that's ever been in my life, something's wrong with how I'm living my life. I am the problem and I just, I don't want to live like this anymore. In step five, it wasn't just somebody listening and just kind of quietly just listening and receiving everything I had to say. What my sponsor was doing, I had a red pen with me throughout my step five and we were making circles and identifying patterns, patterns that I was living my whole life in that were not working. So at the end of step five, I had a list of all these patterns. You, you can call them patterns or character defects or whatever you'd like to call them. For me, they were patterns. And they were things like, um, there were things like, I'm not a sincere person. When I do something for someone, it's never for the sake of doing them. It's always because I either expect them to do the same back to me or because I'm trying to get something out of it. I never do it just for the pure joy of being the kind of person who does that thing. Another one was, um, I was just like, when I was on the food, I was just this bubbly, excited person all the time. And when I actually put down the food, what I realized was under that bubbly person was an Eeyore. I don't know if you know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. He's this like, I think he's a donkey. And he's just always so sad and like, you know, oh, hi. Yeah, today's a terrible day. Like that was me every day on the call with my sponsor. She should get an award for having to listen to my, to take my call every day, just because every day was like, yeah, you know, my, I was, I have to see my mom today. Yeah. Today I have to do this at work. Oh, now today I feel pain in my back every day. There was something and everything was a drama. There was no such thing as like just a disappointment. There was only devastation. You know, there was no such thing as just, oh, this is an, this is a happy thing that's happened. It's just, I'm either manically excited or terribly, you know, devastated. There was not a lot in between. I would use people. That was another pattern of mine. I would, um, I would form, I would make people feel like we were much closer than we really were. And really all I was was creating these alliances. People that I, I wasn't really close to, I would make them into my best friends. Even people at work like my managers or my supervisors, just so that I could feel safe. Um, I wanted, another pattern was, I wanted all the benefits of being an adult, but without actually the spiritual, emotional, physical effort that goes into being an adult. Um, and then one of the other ones was, oh my gosh, I was notoriously late all the time. I would never show up on time. All my friends knew that if I had to show up at three o'clock at around five o'clock, I'd call to let them know that I'm going to be late and then maybe show up at six or seven. That was, it was just a pattern. Everyone came to expect it, or I would just not show up at all. That was constant. I would call to be like, you know, just last minute, be like, oh, you know what? Make up some excuse and just not show up for people. These were some of the patterns that we identified in my step five. So now that I, I knew that these are the patterns that I'm living in, they're not working and I'm the problem. Now I'm ready to look into, to go into step six. So when I got, I completed my full step five, you know, 
my sponsor and I read step six and seven, and we read it out at the AA 12 and 12 as well. And I saw that line, you know, that said, this is what separates the men from the boys. And I'm like, really? Like, really? Like, I just went through the harrowing, like step four and five. And I'm like, ooh, how's step eight and nine going to be? And really, you're telling me step six and seven are rough? And, um, and what I came to realize is saying that you are ready to have your have these patterns and defects removed is totally different from actually being ready. Because the truth is, I didn't actually want to give up any of these. First, because I'm getting a lot out of them. That's the only reason I keep something. Like, they cause me pain too. But what I was getting out of them, just like the food, what I was getting out of them way outweighed what they, what they were doing to me. Another one was I actually didn't see the real nature of my harm. For instance, when I thought, I thought the reason that I was late all the time was because I had bad time management skills or that I was just a very busy person. And those were not the reasons at all. <clears throat> the reason I was late all the time was because I thought my, the core belief is my time is more valuable than their time. It's okay for them to wait, but I don't want to be left waiting even for a minute. Or uh, because I was an undisciplined person. I just want to do what I want to do. So when, it's, when I know I have to be somewhere at 3, I should probably have a shower at around 2.30. But if I could just, I'm just going to watch one more YouTube video, just one more, and then I'll go have a shower. And it's that childishness of like, I just, I want to do what I want to do right now. Those were the real natures of the harm, not time management skills. Some of them I actually didn't even believe, truly believe or bad. Like, of course, yes, you know, I have to pay lip service and tell everybody, you know, one of my uh, patterns and character defects is perfectionism, especially at work. Everything has to be perfect. And if anyone criticizes any, even a little bit of it, I, I, I will berate myself. And it's just like, how could I have made a single mistake here? Um, and, you know, yes, yes, I have to say for everybody else, yes, that's not a good thing. You shouldn't be a perfectionist. But deep down inside, I really believed that's what it takes to be a good employee. I, I'm actually better than everyone else, and that's why I have this perfectionism. So I didn't even believe some of these things were bad. And finally, some of them, I didn't even know how to replace them. Like, I didn't even know what I would be like without them. Like, I didn't know, like, how, how, do, you, like, how do you deal with something difficult happening without drama, without being an Eeyore and complaining? I didn't even know what that looked like. So, I ha so in order for these things to change, they had to become absolutely objectionable to me. So how did that happen? So I finished my step five and I go to my sponsor. I'm like, hey, what do I need to do? And she was like, what you're going to do now is you're going to just live in step six and seven. And my response is, okay, what does that mean? Like, should I write something, read something, do a little jig? Like, what do you, what do you need me to do? Give me an action. And there was no action. It was just, you're just going to live in step six and seven. And what happened after that is God and life experience came together and just all I could see were my character defects. Everywhere I went, they kept slapping me in the face. It's like kept coming up over and over and over. And there were six different things that kept happening. And this is what really these things are how God got me from just saying that, yeah, 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 I want to get rid of these character defects to them actually becoming objectionable to me and really coming to the point of sincerely being like, I don't ever want to be like this person again, ever. And those were, first of all, God put mirrors in my life. And what that meant is he would put people in my life that showed me what it looked like when you do those character defects. And it is extremely uncomfortable to have to watch someone do your character defect in front of you. So for instance, for me, it was my sister. And I would call her up and all I would hear was just, 
yeah, my job is, you know, oh, my manager's doing this now. And, and, and even when she would get exactly what she wanted, like two weeks ago, she was complaining, oh, you know, I messaged this guy on, on this uh, website and now he hasn't messaged me back and I don't know what to do and oh, everything's awful. And then two days later, he messages her and now he's messaged me and I don't know what to say. And like, no matter what happened, there was always something to complain about. And I remember being so irritated by this until I realized that is exactly what I do. And this is what it looks like when I do it. And once I started to see that, it's like, oh, I I don't really want to be like that anymore. The second thing was God would put people in my life that would do that exact same thing to me. And so I got to be on the receiving end where I actually got to feel the consequences of it. So for instance, um, especially once I started to be on time for things and I started to not be late because I was working the steps, what I started to notice was my family is never on time. They're always late. They never, it's just understood that, you know, if they say dinner is going to be at seven o'clock, you're lucky if dinner is actually at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you know? And so I got to feel the consequences of what it feels like when other people do that to you. So I got to really put myself in the shoes of the people that I do those things to and realize, ooh, this doesn't feel good. And, you know, it feels so yucky for me. How does it feel to all my friends and family and coworkers who can never tell if Crystal will actually show up to the meeting when she says she's going to show up to the meeting or if Crystal will actually be at my birthday when she says she's going to be at my birthday? Um, It feels yucky. The third thing is I started to realize that these were not just like, you know, okay, let's just make Crystal a slightly better person than Crystal already is. Some of these, these are actually fatal. These patterns are fatal to me. So for example, one of my patterns is procrastination. The way it manifests is, as an example, at work, it's like, okay, Crystal, this is, you know, the, your, your assignment. And once you create this proposal, okay, when's the deadline? Three weeks from today. Okay, I can probably get this done in about three or four days. So three weeks minus four days is when I will start doing the assignment. And, or at least I will, I would, I would have planned to start doing the assignment when I actually start doing the assignment is probably one day before it's actually due. Um, sometimes actually the day that it's due or the day after it's due. That's just how, that's the kind of person I am. And again, I realize it's not my time management skills. And it's not just a, how can we make Crystal a better employee? You know, I realize the real problem here is that when something scares me or when something feels bigger, um, than I can handle, I put it in a little box in my head. Oh, I don't really know what to do with that proposal. And I'm kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling kind of iffy about whether I will have the creativity to come up with the right solution. I'm just going to put it in a box and keep it in my head and I'll just deal with it three weeks later because it's due three weeks later. But the truth is nothing stays in a box. No matter how much, I, how much stuff I put in that little box, ultimately what I have is this pit in the back of my stomach, in the back of my heart going, you know, you haven't done that yet, right? You know, you haven't completed that yet, right? And you know what? You don't know how it's going to work out. Oh my gosh, what if it never it doesn't work out? What if you don't get it done in time? There's constantly this, this anxiety in the back of my mind, in this pit of my stomach. And that anxiety, that, that pit in my stomach will take me right back to the food. I cannot live like that anymore. So procrastination is not just a, a cute little quirk that I need to fix to be a slightly better person. It is a fatal pattern that will send me back to the food. Another thing that gets things to be objectionable to me is I experience the real consequences and I lose something that I, I, or I come close to losing something that I never wanted to lose. 
And one of the things here was um, one of my patterns is that I will be whoever you want me to be so you will like me. I will say whatever you want me to say so that I can feel safe around you. And I did that with a very close friend of mine. And I um, was not authentic with her. And I pretended to be someone I was not with her. And she found out I was lying. And she said, you know, she doesn't, she didn't know if she could really be in a relationship with me um, because she couldn't trust whether, whether anything I said was real, which is absolutely fair. And I, I got to experience the real consequences of potentially losing someone that I cared about so much and I valued so much because, of, because I was not willing to let go of this defect of being and saying whatever I had to say for you to like me. Um, the fifth one was I just get exhausted. These patterns are exhausting. And um, one, of the, one of the patterns that I had was, <clears throat> sorry, when I started dating my husband, one of the patterns I lived my life in was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. That was a constant, it's like a mental pattern. So it's not a physical pattern that I would live in, but a, a mental one. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, uh-oh, you know, don't trust things too much. Like, you know, God gives me things, but then he takes it away. So like, be careful. That was the constant way I lived my life. And when I started to, and the, the belief behind it was that if I liked something too much, God would need to take it away from me, either to teach me a lesson or to make sure not, I didn't put anything before him. And that's not a, that's a terrible way to live because what that means is you can actually never be happy because no matter what gift God gives you, you're always waiting for it to be taken away. And this is exhausting. I spent the first nine months of dating my husband in complete fear and I was exhausted at the end of nine months. And finally, I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm just too tired. I can't, I can't. Like the, when the fear would come up, it was like, you know what? I just, I can't do it anymore. Like, I'm just too tired to, to go down the rabbit hole of panic and 15 step tens on this. And like, I can't, I can't do it anymore. Um, so exhaustion really helps you get to the point of like actually wanting this to be removed. And the final one was being inspired by others. Somebody else showing me what it looks like to not be in that character defect. Because honestly, I don't even know what that looks like. So for me, for example, <clears throat> this came in the, uh, with my character defect or my pattern of uh, drama and self-pity, this whole your thing, you know. Um, I have a friend in program who, um, I remember at one point I, I gave her a call and she had, she had fallen and broken a rib of hers. And the whole call, she was just like happy and jolly and talking about how wonderful things were. And at the end of the call, she just happened to offhandedly mention that, you know, yeah, I fell and broke my rib. And I'm like, wait, what? Like you broke your rib? Like for me, if, if I even have a slight cough, if I even have a tiny paper cut, a little pain, it's like everybody has to know. My parents need to be informed. You know, do I need to go to the ER? Like, I just everything is a huge drama. You know, I didn't realize. Like, I didn't even know that non-drama was even an option. You know, like another one actually was, um, I remember this one time when I was in program and I was single and I was very lonely and I had a very hard time with, with being lonely. And um, this one, uh, I, I had met this one guy and we had this 45 minute call that I assumed, I thought, you know, obviously this is the man I'm going to marry based on this 45 minute call. And uh, he never called me back after. 
And oh my goodness, for the next month, I was just a pot of self-pity and martyrdom. And just like, I, there was not a single call where I was not like crying. Like I was crying all the time. It was just drama city. And then, and because I thought that was just, if anything bad happened to you, you are entitled to just like, to just like wallow in self-pity because what, what else are you supposed to do? And then I encountered a fellow who had been in a relationship who I admired her, this relationship that she had for 13 years. And she and this man met after many, many years, I think, you know, of, of being single. And um, so she was kind of like my poster child of like, hopefully that will happen to me. And she had this beautiful relationship and she found out that, uh, that he had cancer. And to, to me, I'm like, that is license to completely just, you know, wallow in self-pity. And I was on the phone with her and she was just so graceful and so calm. And just, you know, she was like, you know, I knew this was a risk when I took to be in love with this man. I chose to fall in love with another human being. And I knew this was, this is a risk that we take. We could lose them, you know, and, and she just focused on how she could be helpful to him. And I was just so amazed by these two examples. I was just so blown away. And I was like, I just, I don't even know how they're doing that, but I want that. And that was the first step, wanting it, you know, really wanting it. So once I had done these things, once these things had happened, I'd finally gotten myself to a place where it's like, yes, I actually want to remove these things from my life. Now I'm at step seven. Now I can humbly be willing, uh, humbly ask God to remove my shortcomings sincerely. Um, Now, how does this happen? How do I actually cooperate with God because it's not like I'm just going to sit there and God's just going to you know poof magically make me be on time you know eliminate all the traffic on the highways and suddenly crystals on time to everything and um that doesn't happen like I have to change some of my behavior um but I can't do it myself like I can't remove these things myself if I could I would have and I did try trust me I tried all the possible time management techniques and none of them made me be on time because that was not the problem to begin with so first thing, I actually, I didn't act as if, like I didn't wake up in the morning and say to myself, okay, today I'm going to be a considerate person. I'm going to act like a considerate person. I'm going to walk into my mom and dad's house and I'm going to act like a patient person. And the reason is I'm a terrible actor, just a terrible, terrible actor. I don't even know what patience and, and kind, real patience, real kindness, um, real consideration for others really looks like. All I can do is a bad imitation of it. And what I ended up what I end up looking like when I act is kind of like a Ned Flanders, you know, from The Simpsons. He's the like snively little, very self-righteous neighbor guy who, I mean, let's face it, everybody hates him the most on the show. You know, even though he's like extra nicey nice, like nobody likes him because it, it's insincere and it's hammy and it's it's just like it, it's yucky, you know, and that's what I come off like when I try and act like anything. So what does this mean then? First of all, the number one thing I have to do is name it. When I when I see that character defect, and trust me, once it's like step five, in step five, the scales fall from your eyes, and step five and six, the scales fall from your eyes, and now all you can do is just see your character defects everywhere. But what's important is I don't sweep it under the rug. I name it every single time. I call a fellow, call my sponsor, and name it. I did that again. And 
that means I have to be comfortable. I have to get comfortable with being very uncomfortable. It feels very yucky. I have a friend in program who calls it the greeblies, that feeling like I can't even be in my own skin. You know, that feeling of like, I did it again. I can't believe I did it again. Now that I'm actually trying not to do it, I'm still doing it again. Like it just feels awful. But, but I keep naming it every single time. Second of all, I stop berating myself in my head. I, I have a, um, <coughs> a friend in the program who says that, you know, we're like little puppies and we're constantly just running in all these different directions. And when the puppy goes in the wrong direction, you just pick up the puppy and move the puppy in the right direction. But you, at no point do you take, out, take a bat and beat the puppy. There's, like, that's not what you do. You know, and that's what I spent my whole life doing. If I ever found that I did something wrong or admitted that I did something wrong, my only tool in my toolbox was to beat the puppy. Like just berate myself. Like, you're so stupid. I can't believe you did this again. You always do this. You're never going to change. Why do you even bother changing? Like that's the voice that's in my head. And the way I stopped that voice was realizing that that voice is actually, it's not because, oh, I'm going to be kind to myself and I'm going to like love myself. It's actually because that voice is my get out of life free card. What that voice does is it gives me license to not actually make any changes in my life. What that means is, oh, you know what, Crystal, you beat yourself up enough. Don't worry about it. And then I don't actually have to stop being late. I don't actually have to stop lying to people. I can just give myself a little beat up in my head and that's it. So I no longer want a get out of life free card. I have to actually make change. So I'm going to bypass the easy answer of berating myself in my head and actually make the changes. So how do I do that? First, I go to God. I go to God because this is not just a behavior modification program. This is not me changing my habits. It's not God, like, please help me to, you know, be on time today and, you know, and, and uh, do things when I say I'm going to do them or uh, say honest things. It's actually God, like, I actually get on my knees first thing in the morning, actually, not even before I have to be at an event that I know I'm going to be late for. Um, <clears throat> right in the morning, I start off with God, Please make me into the type of person that respects other people's time. Today, I'm meeting my sister in the afternoon. Please help me to respect her as a human being and show up for her when I say I'm going to show up. Even if it's hard for me, even if it's inconvenient, even if it means that I have to not watch those YouTube videos that I want to watch and I have to go do something that I really don't want to do, like have a shower or dress up or whatever else it takes um, to get there on time, please help me to respect my sister. Please help me to be honest with this person because they deserve that. They get to choose whether they want to be with the real me, not just the me that they think I am or the, the me that I'm pretending to be. They get to choose if they want to be in, the, in a relationship with the real me. And I don't want to be the kind of person that takes that choice away from them. So I go to God first thing in the morning and I ask for the right thing. I ask him to transform me into a different person. Because I can only maybe change my habits a little. I can't make me a different person. God has to do that. Now, the next few ones, this is how I cooperate with God. I have to actually take some action. In some cases, I have to go back and correct what I did. So one of the examples was, <clears throat> I had a friend whose um, mother-in-law passed away. And her funeral, I was invited to the funeral. Uh, or I was, yeah, I was going to go to the funeral. 
And I, it was a Sunday and that's, I, I was meal prepping and I, I didn't stop meal prepping when I should have stopped meal prepping. I didn't go for a shower on time. I didn't get dressed on time. The, the say the funeral was around three o'clock. It's now, you know, 2.45. The, the funeral's about at least an hour drive away. You know, there's no way. I'm going to make it on time. I'm like, you know what? I'm not going. It's fine. I'm just, you know what? She'll understand. Um, I'm just not going to go. And I'm not even going to call her and tell her. And I, I, for whatever reason, I happened to call my sponsor at that point. It was like 2.50, I think. And the uh, funeral's at 3 o'clock. I call my sponsor and I'm like, yeah, you know, I had this funeral today. But, you know, I just, I ended up not going. I just, I needed to meal prep and do other things at home. And, and thank you, God, for, for, um, for sponsors who give it to you straight. And she was just like, wait a minute, what? You ha- your friend had a funeral and you didn't go? And, and I was, she was like, you stop whatever you're doing right now and you go get your butt there right now. And I'm like, but, but the funeral's at three o'clock. Like, if I leave now, by the time I get there, it'll be done. Like, I'll, I will literally get there for the last five minutes of it. And, and her response was, I don't care what time you get there. You show up there with flowers and you stay for as long as she needs you to stay. Who cares if the funeral's done at four? You stay with her as long as you need her to stay with you. And I did it. I can't believe it. It's like, it, to me, it was the most ridiculous thing I could ever do. And I did it. I, I got dressed. I got flowers. I drove for 45 minutes to an hour. I got there 10 minutes or five minutes before the funeral ended. And I'm so grateful. I got there and my friend ran up to me and she hugged me. And she was just so touched. She said, I can't believe you made it. I can't believe you came. To, I know Sunday is your meal prep day. I, I can't believe you made time to come to this. And that made me feel so awful that this, this is the expectations my friend, friends have of me, that me showing up 10 minutes before the end of her mother-in-law's funeral meant so much to her. That told me what she expected of me as a friend. And that showed me. And I remember that night being like, God, I never want to be that kind of a friend to anybody ever again. I will never, you know, not show up for people. And uh, so, um, so I need to go back and correct it so that I can then be- realize this is the kind of person I want to be. The second thing I do is I don't get in, I don't get, put myself in situations um, where those kinds of defects are going to come up. So as an example, I, I call this, I call this tactic, don't get in the aisle. You know how, like when you're in the supermarket, if you find yourself in the chips and candy aisle, you're like, what are you doing here? Really? Like, do you really need to use this aisle to get to the towels? You're like, why are you even in this aisle? You know, so I call it don't get in the aisle. And one of the examples was I found myself with this coworker, <laughs> sorry, at work um, where every time I would call her, we'd end up gossiping, you know, and I, it's not that I would say something, but that she would start talking about one of my other colleagues. And then I would kind of listen and I was, I was kind of intimidated by this coworker. And so I would start doing things like, you know, empathizing with her and kind of like, Oh yeah, I know. Oh, I can't believe when Chanel does that. Or like, yeah, I know that's really hard. And I, I just leave those conversations feeling really yucky because we were talking behind my coworkers back, you know? And what I started to realize is that never happens when, you know, I'm in a meeting with this colleague uh, where we're actually just like talking about work stuff. It's always when we've just had a meeting and after the meeting, I'm like, hey, you want to chat? Like, you want to take like a quick, you know, you know, five minutes and have like a little team call and do a little chat. And whenever we're in that like chatting mode is when this stuff happens. And so I realized, you know what, when it comes to Paula, I'm not strong enough yet to just chat with her. 
um, and not go down that road of gossiping. So I need to not get in the aisle. So now when, uh, so after that, my meetings with Paula were work meetings. I needed to talk to her about something. I would talk to her about that thing. And once I'm done with that work-related thing, I'm off the call with her. And that really helped to stop that behavior. The next thing that I would do to cooperate and, and start to make these changes was I actually had to practice new words and behaviors, you know, because I, like, I don't know how to do these things. So I actually have to learn new words, learn new behaviors. So as an example, one of my uh, Eeyore my, my Eeyore thing. So, you know, one time I remember I called my sponsor and uh, I was, it was a, one of those like complain calls, you know, it's like I called her and I'm like, oh, you know, like my boss wants me to do this and like, I don't know what to do. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, we, we worked the, we did the inventory and her feedback was what, what we basically ended up realizing is that what my boss was doing for me was exactly what I had wanted about three weeks ago. I was complaining that she wasn't doing that for me and, and that I wanted exactly this. And now I'm getting exactly what I had been hoping to get, but here I am complaining about it again. And so you know what we did? Instead of just being like, oh, shoot, like I did it again. Instead, I actually was like, can I get a redo? And we actually put down the phone and I called her back up again. And instead of this time being like, oh, you know what my boss did today? It was like, oh my gosh, you'll never believe what my boss did today. She actually gave me exactly what I wanted three weeks ago. So I actually practiced in a way what it's like to live in a different way, speak in a different way. Another thing that, another way I practice is, um, like one thing that would happen is anytime my sponsor would point out like a character defect coming up, um, my response was always, oh yeah, oh shoot, like I did it again. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that again. And today, what I started to do is practice it differently. Instead, um, uh, what I say now, whenever my sponsor points one of those things out, it's actually like, oh my gosh, like, look at that. Like, there, there I go again. Like, it's just, it, even just changing my tone, just saying it in a different way, I started to practice not being an Eeyore. Started to practice being the kind of person that I want to be, the kind of person that sees gifts in everything and sees the good in all the beautiful things God's giving me. The next thing I did was... Um, not just practicing what to say, but not saying things that I normally would want to say. And many times that I am dying to say, to hold my tongue. That's a huge part of step seven for me. So one of the examples was, <coughs> sorry, one of the hardest ones actually was um, with these, uh, with the, the uh, nuns that I would volunteer with. Um, one of the things I would do is I would make people feel like I was much closer to them than I really was. You know, that was that like forming those alliances. And um, I remember at the end of this call, and I was, so I would be dishonest with people. And I remember I was on a call with this nun. I, I, don't, I didn't really know her very well, and we're not very close or anything. But at the end of the call, she said, I love you. And um, I don't know, like, if somebody says I love you, like, I am just, like, it doesn't even matter who they are. Like, I have to say I love you back. Like, it's so awkward to not say I love you back. What, what will they think of me? They'll be, they'll, they'll, they'll think I'm a horrible person, you know, if I don't say I love you back. Who cares if it's not true? But I remember in that moment being like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I will not lie to this person and say I love you when I don't mean it. And it was one of the hardest things I had to do to not say I love you back. Um, and actually, many people say I love you uh, to me, you know, even in program or outside program. And if I don't if I don't mean it, I won't say it because I won't lie to anybody, you know. 
And instead, I've learned to say new words now, even if it's something like the, you know, the, the cliche, like, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say, or even I really appreciate that. That means a lot. Those are things that are true um, and, and sincere. So I will say what's sincere and true and not, I will not lie. Another example of holding my tongue, this was a big one for me. So um, I, I, I mentioned how I, I'm an insincere person, meaning I do things because I want to get something else out of them. You know, like I'll do something kind because I expect the other person to do something back for me. And one of the examples was when I was planning my wedding with my husband. Um, my husband was not one of those husbands that's like, you plan the wedding and I'll show up. We picked everything together, like down to like the napkin color and, and the song list for the DJ and like everything. We picked everything together. And I can't tell you the number of times all I wanted to say was, hey, I gave you this, so you should give me this. You know, and I actually did kind of do it once where my husband wanted us to our entrance song. So we, he wanted us to enter to the theme from Star Trek, the motion picture. And my instinct was, okay, fine. If we're entering to Star Trek, then we need to have a Disney song be our first dance, you know? And what I realized is, no, I don't want to be that kind of person. The reason I said yes to Star Trek, being our entrance song, is just because I love him and I want him to have that. He's always dreamed of that and I want him to have it. And if I barter it, if I ever say that because we went with the wedding favors you wanted, we should go with the napkins I like, then it, it cheapens what I did for him. It makes it, it turns it into a transaction, a contract. And that's not what I want with my husband. I want him, I want to be the kind of person that just loves him for, because it makes me happy to love him, that walks into our wedding um, uh, banquet hall to the theme of Star Trek because I want to make my husband happy. I want to be that kind of person, and I will not cheapen that action by making it into a contract. And so I had to hold my tongue. The sixth thing is sometimes I have to just accept the consequences of my actions gracefully. They're not punishments, but they are consequences. Sometimes our actions have consequences. I remember um, one of my character defects of like using people and being dishonest was I had uh, a, a woman staying with me uh, as a roommate and I, I was, uh, I used her and I was dishonest with her. When she was away from uh, my home, I used her room without using, without getting her permission. And she was paying me rent and that was not fair. And because of that, she, you know, she said, okay, you know what, I can't, I can't be your roommate anymore. And uh, I thought, you know, that was it. And I'd made the amends on it. And, you know, I thought that was the end of it. And I thought we were friends until she got married last year and didn't invite me to her wedding. And that hurt a lot. You know, and actually it was, it was awful because it's like everywhere I went, all my friends were like, oh, are you coming to Ashwini's wedding? Oh, are you going to this wedding? Oh, my gosh, I'm going to Ashwini's wedding. Everywhere I went, people were telling me about how they're going to her wedding. And I was the only one who felt I felt like I was the only one who was not invited. And you know what? I didn't make I couldn't make I didn't and couldn't make a stink out of it. I did my step tens on it or step 10 on it. And I had to just move on and accept gracefully that these are the consequences of my actions and let this be, let this yucky feeling that I have make it so that I never do that to anybody ever again. And the last thing, the way that I cooperate with God is I don't feed these actions. So some of my patterns are not just behavioral, they're mental. So for instance, this pattern of always feeling like God's going to take something away from me. God's going to take something away from me. And 
whenever I go down that pattern, especially, for example, with my husband, um, when he was my boyfriend, I was constantly like, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose Alex. I'm going to lose Alex. He's like, God's going to take him away from me. Every day, there was some reason why today God's going to take Alex away from me. And I had to learn how to not feed those thoughts. And what I would do is the thought would come and I would pause and I would pray, God, I'm standing at the turning point and I'm asking not for a decision. I'm not asking for you to even take these thoughts away. I'm not even asking for you to, to, to let me have Alex, but I'm asking just for your protection and care for complete abandon. Please show me the next right thing to do. And then the next right thing was usually a very simple thing. Go brush your teeth, go have your lunch, go finish working on that document for work. And then I would just throw myself into that action. And I would, uh, so that's one, I would stop feeding it by just, just not giving it the light of day. Like I've done, I've already done my step 10 on it. I've already worked through the steps on this, on this belief. Now it's time to just move on and do the next right action. Go be of service to someone, go be, make an away call and help somebody else. And sometimes I also needed to replace those uh, thoughts in my head with a different thought. And the different thought was whenever that thought would come up, it would just be, oh, yep, there's that thought again. No need to panic. And instead of God's going to take him away from me, it's God gave me Alex to begin with. And God's got this. Whatever's going on, I'm going to somehow wake up and realize this was the best thing that could ever happen. And I'm going to trust that because that's what I've seen in the last five years. God's shown me that whenever I thought, oh, my gosh, this is it. This is it. This is the this is the argument that I'm having. This is the argument that's going to end our relationship. This is the you know quirk that he has. And I'm like, oh, clearly I can't live with this quirk. This is the thing that's going to end our relationship. I would change it to no. God gave this man to me as a gift. And I'm going to wake up two days from today and realize this was the best thing that could have ever happened for us. And it was true every single time. So I would replace those thoughts. So that was my experience of step six and seven. And truly, I live in step six and seven every single day. It is, these are the steps I'm in most. 90% of my life is spent in step six and seven, I feel. And it takes time. These, these character defects did not go away suddenly. But what, but what I did know is I was sincerely working step six and seven throughout the whole time. And if I am doing that, if I'm not holding on to any of these stubbornly, but sincerely doing my best to give God whatever I am able to give at this time, God has used everything. Even my worst character defects, God has used in very creative ways. Sometimes I'm a mirror to other people of what they don't want to be. And God has used me that way. Other times, He's allowed me to be helpful to people because because I've struggled with every single one of these character defects. I get it now when a sponsee struggles with them because sometimes there are sponsees who struggle with things that I don't struggle with. Like I never struggled with doing what my sponsor told me to do. You know, for the most part, I like at one point I just decided like I'm done. I'm just going to do what my sponsor tells me to do. So when sponsees struggle with that, I can't be helpful to them. But because I struggled so much and I, it took so long for these defects to, to be removed, I can actually be helpful and approachable and I can understand, be compassionate to other people. Today, because of step six and seven, I'm a totally different person from who I don't even recognize the person I was um, five years ago before recovery. You know, not only physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, I don't even know who she is. Forget that. I don't even, I'm a totally different person from who I was one month ago. That's the power of step six and seven. I'm going to be a totally different person from who I am today, like one week from today. Step six and seven is transformational. 
And because of step six and seven, my amends are meaningful. Because when I go to people, it's not an empty sorry. Because for me, amends were never a sorry. They were to give them now what I did not give them then, what I should have given them then. And the only way I can give people now what I should have given them then is by being a different person. So if I haven't sincerely gone through step six and seven, I'm coming to people being the same person that I am, just trying to change my little habits or say that I'm going to do something that I know I'm never going to be able to do. So step six and seven make my amends meaningful. But, and finally, because of step six and seven, I get to actually live more happily, more joyfully, more freely every single day than the day before. And finally, what I'll end with saying is, you know, step six and seven, it's not on me to change me. I can't change me. But it's also, I still have a part to play. And the way this was explained to me, and I thought was really helpful was it's like floating. You know, I have to, like, I can't just kind of be a dead weight on the water. I have to cooperate with the water. I have to, like, allow myself to be lifted up by the water. But without the water, which is God, I can't do anything. That I float on, he's keeping me afloat all the time. He's making it possible. Like without water, there's no floating, right? So without God, there is no changing or transforming that's going to happen. But just, but me trying to just be a dead weight on the water doesn't work either. I have to cooperate with it in order to float. But because of this step, I get to be a different person. I get to be the person, more today, the person that God made me to be than the day before. And I can't wait to see what God transforms me into. Um, you know, a year from today. Thanks for letting me share. I pass. Thank you very much. Crystal R. from Ontario, Canada. I was just thinking over the the root and branch thing here and the courage to change the things I can and the promises on page 83 and 84. Just illuminating here from what you're sharing of your own personal journey through this painstaking process of the steps of recovery. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Thank you so much. And just to let folks know, we will ask Crystal for her contact information at the conclusion of this meeting. So stay tuned. Don't leave not one second earlier for that information. That'll be after the recording stops. The share ID number for today, Sunday, November 12, 2023 is 20826-20826. So the lines are now open for questions for you, Crystal. If you have a question for Crystal, please unmute your phone by pressing star one on your phone <coughs> keypad. Offer your first name and the first letter of your last name. And once you've asked your question, please remute your phone straight away if you would. Thank you so much. Who would like to ask Terry a question this morning? Here's Terry Kay. Gotcha. Chris M. Let me catch that. Chris from Tennessee one more time. Chris what from Tennessee? Chris G in Tennessee. Chris G. Okay, let's go back. Okay, Larry, I heard others before, so I'm going to stick you down here just real quick. Did I hear Chris? Yeah, Chris M. Okay. Chris M. and Chris G. Is that what I have here? And I got you more on? Yes. Okay. Okay, good. Loretta H. Sherry M. Sherry M. Jordan L. Jordan L. Let's stop with that just in case we have time that's kind of ticking by. So what I have, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, um, I have Terry K, Chris G, Chris M, Larry K, Maura Z, uh, Loretta, Sherry, and Jordan. 
So let's start with Terry Kay. Your question, please. Thank you for your service. And um, and that was a beautiful share. I'm going to go back and listen to that for sure. I'd be interested in hearing, um, I'm working with a sponsee right now who has relapsed and I don't really know at this point what direction to go in and I wondered if you had any experience, strength and hope she's on step eight and um, and relapsed. So if you have any experience, strength and hope around that, I would be grateful. Hi Carrie, thanks for the question. I uh, I don't have experience with relapse myself. What I can share is when my sponsees relapse, um, I use, I've used I've pulled on the wisdom of others who have been through relapse. I will usually direct them to um, a really helpful podcast that I heard called um, "Avoiding the Pitfalls of Relapse," and I'll usually work with them on a couple of things. First of all, to I usually when whenever a sponsee picks up the food in any way, whether it's a food behavior or quantity, um, anything that causes them gives them an effect. We never sweep it through under the rug and just kind of like shake it off, like let's just move on. I've never done that with them. I Instead, we always go back and look at the turning points because the food was always the last thing to go. And so I go back with them and I look at, okay, what was the earliest turning point? What was that first decision that you made that said, I don't really need to do this? Or, you know what, I, I coffee is not that important. Was it that, you know, suddenly prayer and meditation started not happening in the morning or I stopped making, making outreach calls. I started turning off my video at the meetings, whatever it was, you know, identifying what was that earliest turning point and writing down all the turning points since then that took us up to the food. And so that helps us to see what the problem was and what actually needs to change. Because then we need to take a look at, um, you know, in order to recover, what are the next steps? Uh, if we, if I know that my sponsee has sincerely like worked the steps, um, and ha- like to, to the, you know work the steps, and something came up, then we have to look. Okay, okay what was she uh, not willing to do before that she ha- needs to become willing to do now, or what did she stop doing that needs to she needs to start doing again? If it's a new sponsee that I'm working with, we look at. Okay, did you actually go through the steps through the big book? Uh, to begin with, you know, so we uh, we take a look at those things to decide. Okay, is does this does do we need to go back to step one, or does this need mean, you know, you have to become willing to do something that you weren't willing to do, or uh, willing to continue to do something that you had stopped doing, uh, or maybe there's a particular behavior that needs to be needs or, or or corrected. And either way, no matter what it is, we always go to God. Always, always go to God to say, God, please guide me. Um, you know, please help me to help this person the way you want me to help this person. Um, so that I can be, I can be helpful to them. Because for me, I found there's not always one. Like there's no, there's no formula or a right. Like, like this is just follow steps one, two, and three. You know, I found that the steps are not reading and writing activities. They actually have, actually have to happen in my heart and in my life for it to become real and for me to have a spiritual awakening. So I usually go to God and ask for direction. I usually go to my sponsors and other. Um, recovered people who have experience with relapse to, to get feedback as well. And uh, and I, I go through those steps with the sponsee. I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Terry Kay, for your question this morning. Next up is Chris G. Your question, please. Chris G. Thank you. Thank you so much for, uh, for sharing with us today. And I'm so excited uh, to share this uh, with my sponsees. Um, I, my question uh, my question is is about identifying, having a clear idea of what it is. Um, I I know before I started my fourth step, I couldn't do a fourth step because I blamed everybody else 
for all of my problems. I didn't take responsibility for any of my actions. But just identifying, instead of having a vague idea that I have a problem with something, of being clear. How do you get to that point of being clear? Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Um, I think for me, a couple of things helped with this. So first of all, uh, in my step four, just seeing that pattern emerge over and over and over, like writing over and over, you know, the words um, self-esteem, 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 fear, fear, fear. I wrote everything. I did my whole step four by hand, but writing in a notebook and writing those things over and over and over. You're right. All it created for in me was this vague idea that like something's not right here, like something's really, really wrong. Maybe I've got a problem with self-esteem, you know, but I didn't know what the actual patterns were. And that's where a recovered sponsor really helped me, you know. And so when I went into my step five, it wasn't this like, you know, let me just tell you my whole life story and you just listen to me. It wasn't about being heard. It wasn't about just saying things to her. This was where another uh, compulsive overeater who has recovered from this disease, who can see things I cannot see, who can see patterns I cannot see because she has those same patterns as me, be able to name them for me. So many of them, my sponsor actually was able to name for me because she had similar patterns and because she could see them. Like, if, you know, when, it's very easy when you're on the receiving end, especially when you have an alcoholic mind yourself. Like when I listen to my sponsees, I can hear it. Yep, there it's everybody else's fault. It's everybody else's fault. It's everybody else's fault. You, when you hear that same pattern over and over and over and you have your sponsee actually name it for you, to be like, have you noticed how nothing's ever your fault? Have you noticed how you blame? And this is, uh, and I'm saying this, Chris, because this is my pattern too. Everything was my mom's fault. You know, my mom never protected me. My na- my dad never uh, loved me and and uh, supported me. My sister was always this. My best friend was always that. Everybody else's fault. Nothing was ever my fault. That was a huge pattern for me. You know, and and what my sponsor pointed out to me was, first of all, that I was doing that. So I needed some help. It wasn't just by myself. And just to be clear, when I say I'm getting my sponsor's help, this wasn't just two, you know, compulsive readers sitting and like theorizing and coming up with things. This is always in the context of God, like praying at the beginning of these step five to say, God, show us what we need to see. And, and, and in the context of me praying the set aside prayer to say, God, help me to set aside everything I think I know and be willing to have a totally new experience here. Because I had to come into my step five with a total willingness. I made a decision that if even if my sponsor told me that the sky is green, I, I'd accept it. Because I was just like, like, the way I'm living my life right now is not working. And many things she said did seem like she was saying the sky is green. Like, you know, blaming my mom or, or the line in my head was always, my mom is a coward. My mom is a coward. And when I sat down in my step five and my sponsor said to me, wow, your mom is such a courageous woman. It's, I felt like someone had punched me in the gut because it was like saying the story I had been telling myself for 30 years was not true. So I had to come in making a decision that I was going to be open to that, praying to God for the willingness and the um, <clears throat> the ability to just set aside everything I think I know. And my sponsor also praying to say, God, help, show me how I can be helpful. So it's always done in the context of God. But yes, I needed help from fellows to name these patterns for me to show me that the pattern is not just that, oh, I'm blaming all these other people and I should take the blame all on myself or something like that. That's not it. It's that the real nature, and that's the other thing, it's not just to name the pattern, but to come to the real nature of the harm, which is the reason I'm blaming these people is what I'm getting out of it is that then 
not, I don't have to live with a voice in my head that tells me something's my fault. So what I do, my pattern, is that I get other people to make decisions for me. I put my whole, the burden of all my decisions and choices on them so that when things go wrong, I can blame them because then I never have to face the voice in my head that tells me the horrible things about myself, that you are useless, that you, do, you, you always get things wrong. I knew it was your fault. I never have to listen to that voice. So I'd rather my life go in the direction that other people decide and that I blame them than have to take responsibility and take my, uh, make decisions myself and listen to that voice. So the problem is that voice. And I have to ask God to remove that voice in order to remove this behavior. I hope that helps. Thank you very much, Chris G, for your question. Next up is Chris M with a question. Hi. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hi, it's Chris M from Ontario, Canada. Uh, thank you for your service. And uh, Crystal, it was such a pleasant surprise to hear you on the line today. Um, hope I can make sense of this question. Um, you talked about when you had completed a step 10 and been thorough with it and, you know, talked to recovered people, your sponsor, <clears throat> and then, you you know, if it would come again, um, you know, you'd know that you dealt with it, you'd pause. Um, so I guess, like, do you ever, uh, what happens, like, if you have the, a recurrent uh, step 10 that, that comes up, like, how, how does that sort of, I guess, how does, how do they kind of work together? Because uh, I, I can have uh, repetitive step tens, and at what point, I guess, do you say, okay, this is this is done? Like, how do you navigate that? Thanks so much. Thank you, Chris. Uh, good to hear you too. I that is oh my, that's a really good question also because oh my gosh, that has been so much my experience in the last couple of years. You know, I I think initially there's a difference. I think initially, you know, when I first start working the steps, I'm doing a lot of step 10s. Like there's a lot of resentments and fears that come up, especially early in program. Like, and and for me, I felt like that was normal. Like there's just, I'm now seeing things that I never saw before. So if I'm doing a lot of step 10s at that point, that's fine. But I did find at some point, you know, when the step, so re- when, when I start realizing the step 10s are in a way a part of the pattern was when um, they start becoming counterproductive. So first of all, it's usually because I'm trying to use the step 10 to do something that step 10s were never meant to do, which is number one, try and make a feeling go away. So if I'm trying to use a step 10 um, to, to not feel lonely, like I did so many step 10s on just being lonely from because I was single, because I wanted the step 10 to make me not feel lonely from being single anymore. And that is not the purpose of the step 10. That is not the promise of a step 10. The step 10 makes it so that I can live my life and experience every emotion, every human emotion there is and not self-destruct and just continue to be useful and, um, and, and graceful in my life, you know, uh, but it's not meant to make, to replace feelings and make them go away. So if I'm doing step tens over and over to try and make a feeling go away, then um, I realized that um, for me, what's, what was helpful at that point was to instead realize that, okay, if I've, if there is no alcoholic fear or resentment related to it, then it, and it's just a sad feeling, then I have to just feel the feeling. And usually it's, you know, yeah, feel the feeling, feel uncomfortable for a little bit and then move on. Like go ask God, you know, what's the next right thing to do? Can I go be helpful to somebody? Can I, you know, I can't sit and wallow in it for a long time, but I, 
It's just feel the feeling and move on. That's what helped me is at some point when I was using step tens to just make feelings go away. There were other times for me personally, sometimes step tens became part of the pattern. So for instance, um, with my, uh, when, when uh, I was dating my, my now husband, um, I would constantly be calling fellows and doing step tens because anything that came up in our relationship, I was so afraid God was going to take Alex away from me. The reason I was calling fellows was not actually because I wanted to be a different person. I wanted to, uh, God to remove this defect. I wanted the fellows to tell me it's going to be okay. That don't worry, God's not going to take Alex away from you. And that is not, um, that is not what my fellows are meant to do. I am now trying to replace God with fellows. So whenever I started to replace God with fellows, that's when I realized step tens are not helping. They're actually part of the pattern of putting the burden of my own decision making of whether I should continue in this relationship or not continue in this relationship on these fellows or put the burden of my like the fact that I didn't want to actually change the core belief. I didn't want to take the action of changing that core belief that God will take things away from me. And the way I can continue to have that belief is just every time that belief comes up, go to fellows and have them convince me that God won't do that. And that's not helpful. So usually when, um, so it, it's never that I'm like, oh, you just stop doing step tens and you don't need to do step tens anymore. But it's just when I realize that I'm trying to use it to make a feeling go away or when, I, when I'm using it to use my fellows because I don't want to go to God or actually take an action to stop the cause or condition that's causing that that uh, pattern to keep coming up or that resentment or anger to keep coming up, that's when step 10 is not the answer. I need to go back to six and seven and, and ask God to really remove that before I can move forward to eight, nine, 10, 11. I hope that helps. Thank you very much for your question. Uh, Mary Kay, your question next, please. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you for your service. Uh, Larry Kay, Recovered Compulsive Reader from Chicago. Thanks so much. And Crystal, um, thank you so much. I just absolutely love your passion for recovery and your wisdom. I learned so much from you. So to the question, um, I, I, I asked God actually to lead me to a question because I wanted to ask you questions. I have no idea, but it, it, this is where my mind immediately went. So here's the question. Um, I'm just going to, it took me right, God took me right to page 98 to a particular paragraph I hadn't even thinking about. So I'm going to read a short, uh, short uh, uh, sentence about it. And it's on page 98. It says, burn the idea into the consciousness of every man, I'm going to say in woman, every man and woman that he can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trust in God and clean house. Can you speak to that at all, Crystal, if you're feeling anything? Appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this was, this was a huge learning for me in program because uh, this, this sentence affected every aspect of how I came to recover <laughs> in multiple different ways. When I first came into program, you know, I thought that the only way I could recover is if everyone in my life uh, understood what I could and could not eat, what I could and could not do, that they uh, respected it, that they understood it, that they were compassionate towards it, that they supported it, that they cooked things accordingly and changed their behavior. And I came to believe that my, and I came to realize very quickly that my recovery is only my responsibility. It is between me and God. 
That was number one, that my, especially starting off with my abstinence. Nobody else is responsible for my abstinence but for me, meaning it does my, till today, my parents don't get it. Like till today I've been, I've not, I've been abstinent now for almost six years until today I'll go to a birthday party and my dad will be like, aren't you having any cake? Can I get you a drink? And I'm like, it's been five years, dad. You know, I don't even say that anymore. It's just like, no, thank you. I'm okay. People come and offer me food. And I, I never explain to them. I never tell them, oh, you know, I don't eat this. I never feel badly. It's just, thank you very much. I'm okay. I don't need it. And Today, it is nobody else's responsibility to keep me abstinent but me. Nobody even has to understand it. I don't even try to convince anybody about program or abstinence or recovery or anything. It's none of their business, and it's not their burden. It's not their responsibility. It's only mine. The second thing is, I, after, after my family and everybody else, the next thing I thought I needed in order to recover was a really, really good sponsor. Like, if I had the right sponsor, then I could recover. You know, and for a long time, you know, my sponsor was on my sponsors, anybody, whoever had the title sponsor was automatically placed on this pedestal of like, you take care of me. Okay. Like, as long as you tell me the right thing to do and you're always uh, in recovery, then I'll be okay and safe. And I came to realize slowly through program that, um, first of all, that is a dangerous way to live. Because anybody, anybody in our program is just a human being and nobody else should be up on that pedestal except for God. Like God is the only person that I should, that I can and should rely on because first of all, it's not fair to the sponsor. It's not fair to have to, to kind of be on this pedestal and worry that every action you take, every word you say could possibly, you know, send this person into a tailspin. That is not fair to the other person. And I don't want to live like that anymore. But I was also taught by my sponsor. And I realize now that if I am ready, Mickey Mouse can sponsor me and I will recover. And if I am not ready and willing to do the work, then Bill Wilson himself can sponsor me and I will not recover. So regardless of anyone, who my sponsor is, what my parents believe, what my husband likes or doesn't like, what my coworkers do or don't do, how much my dad irritates me when he comes over to my house and points out every little scratch and thing that I haven't done correctly, all those things, none of those are requirements or hindrances or obstacles to me recovering. I can recover no matter what, as long as I do what is suggested of me by recovered people who have what I want. And I turn to God in every moment and say, God, I know you've got this. Please show me the next right thing to do. I'm standing at the turning point and asking only for your protection and care with complete abandon. I hope that helps, Larry. Thank you very much, Larry, for your question. Maura Z, you're up with a question, please. Good morning, Good morning Melanie. Morning. Thank you so much. Here you are. Hi, good morning. I'm sorry about that. I was double muted. Um, good morning, Melanie. Thank you so much for your service, um, for leading the meeting. And um, Crystal, this is probably the the two steps that have been just um, so unclear as to how to work. And I'm so very grateful. This is I wrote down the share ID. I will be listening to this again and again because my short-term memory is just horrific. Um, my greatest character defect right now is sloth. I decided, or not decided, but I thought the other day that basically what I'm doing is just waiting to die. And 
it has nothing to do with the quality of my life because my my life is good. I'm I'm recovered. I'm grateful. Um, and but yet I do nothing. I go to work. I come home. I do nothing. And I've struggled with this for quite some time now. And I'm just wondering if you have any little pearls of wisdom or some guidance that you might share on how do I go about getting ready to get this removed and perhaps why this is going on or what I can do. And um, I don't know if this is making sense, but whatever you could share from, from your wisdom, your experience, strength, and hope would be greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for that question. And uh, I can relate a lot. Like for me, I haven't called it sloth and my, I think mine's a little bit different. Um, mine is, um, I call it like a laziness, I guess. It's probably, I know it means the same thing, but I think for me, the way it manifests is I just, I just, whenever there's actually real work to do. And by that, what I mean is work that I don't enjoy, work that I do enjoy, whether that's like, you know, designing the PowerPoint or, you know, um, organizing something in my kitchen, I love to do that work. So I can make myself very, very, very busy doing work that I love. But whenever I have to put in an effort that I don't enjoy, uh, oh my gosh, it's like my whole body is like a ton of bricks. And I just, you know, it just, I, I, what I end up doing usually is um, with those kinds of things, I like to make a plan. So I'll start planning and I'll start making a little very minute plan of how I'm going to do that thing and by the time I'm done planning and how I'm going to do it perfectly it's going to be done really really well and I'm going to actually not just do that but I'm going to make it so that I'm doing it every day for the rest of my life I'm going to make a big thing that's going to happen and then once I'm done with the planning I'm so exhausted I should probably just take a nap you know that's that's usually what happens for me that's how like this sort of sloth or laziness manifests for me and um, what I would suggest with that is just, or, or what worked for me for that is is exactly uh, like the step six and seven piece, you know, first looking at like in step six, do we really, did I really think that was a bad thing? Like, do I, do I actually want to get rid of it? Or am I kind of happy with the way that it is? Because if I am happy the way that it is, if I'm getting something out of it that is valuable to me, it doesn't matter how many people tell me that it's not a good thing. It doesn't matter if I look at other people, I'm like, oh, look at them living their life and doing all these things. I will never get off the couch ever. So I have to come to the place where I'm like either and honestly, what I found is once I notice one of these things and I sincerely go to God and I'm like, please just help me, help me. God comes through like he starts to put people in my life where I see what slot looks like. He starts to, you know, show me the consequences of it. He starts to it just starts coming up over and over, you know, and once once that happens, I know, OK, God's working on this. This is the thing that God's working on right now in me. And then it's a matter of it becoming actually objectionable to me, you know, um, where I actually want to get rid of it. So I would um, maybe if you want to give me a call later, I actually have this worksheet that I've used that helps me to look at what what am I getting out of this behavior? Uh, because that has really helped me give up uh, or, or be willing or wanting for God to take away things that I've held on to for a very, very long time. Because I think that, yeah, so first I need to actually want to. And that what helps me is to realize why am I doing it in the first place? What am I getting out of it? And then sometimes what I'm getting out of it is so yucky. I'm like, okay, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. And then in six and seven, it means going to God in the morning to say, God, so it's not God help me to have more energy. God help me to, you know, be more productive. That's not the ask. It's God. Like you have given me the gift 
of life. Like this is for me in my job, actually, this is my prayer because I, I can get very lazy in my job. Like I don't, there's many things I don't like to do in my job. I only want to do the things I like to do in my job. And so what I pray is God, I am so lucky. There are so many, so many other compulsive overeaters out there who would give anything to be in, to have the five and a half years of recovery you've given me. And because of you, I get to have a job today that I actually love. I get to have a life today where I have energy in my body, you know, and I don't want to just hold that gift at ransom. You have given me talents and gifts. You, you've given me this bubbly personality. You've given me a sense of humor. You've given me, you know, I, I can sing, I can dance, I can do all these things. I will not sit on all those gifts and keep them at ransom because I don't really want to bother doing anything with it. You know, that's the real nature of the harm is that I've been given gifts and talents that other people need. And God has a mission for me that that is waiting for me. And other people are waiting for me to use those things. And I'm sitting on all of that because I don't really want to bother. And I don't really want to get off the couch. And that's the real nature. So God, please give me that zest. Give me like help me to value the body you've given me, the, the talents you've given me, given me so I can put it at the service of everybody, my coworkers, my husband, my sister, my mom, my dad, the person in front of me in, in the coffee shop, whoever, you know, let me put it at their service. So ask for the right thing. And then I, the last thing is take a small act of courage. So don't, like, I, I always like to make a master plan of how I'm not, I'm now I'm going to be the least slothful person ever. But no, small act of courage. Today, can I go for a walk? Today, could I, could I maybe give a friend a call and see if I could maybe babysit their kids? Today, you know, for me, it was like, what, I, I, I Googled songwriting club. And I was like, oh, there's a songwriting club in Toronto. I think I'll join them and go to one meeting. See if I like it. Try to write one song. I don't have to become a songwriter. I just, like, try one small thing. And that one act of courage has led to so much transformation, not because I have changed my behaviors, but because that is my way of telling God through my actions, not my words. Yes, I am willing for you to change me. This is just my small little contribution. Now you take it and make me into a different person. I hope that helps. But please do give me a call. I'm happy to chat more after. Thank you, Morzi, for your question. Crystal R., we have run out of time this morning. And so we might have to save those other questions for a personal phone call with you. Loretta and Sherry and Jordan also had questions today, but our time just won't allow. So my apologies to you that I took your name down, and uh, I would ask them right now this very moment so that they can have it for your contact information. Thanks so much for being so thorough with the answering of these questions. It was delightful. But your contact information would be so helpful. Absolutely. My number is, I'm, I'm in uh, Toronto, oh, Canada. wait a minute. I'm so oh. sorry. Don't don't give it now. I haven't even stopped the recording. I am so sorry. Oh, I sure. Don't want this, this could go out over the web. I jumped ahead of myself a little bit because no I had looked at the folks that were left to remain, so my apologies. Um, let me read from page 164, now that my mind is a little more clear, <laughs> and as we close this meeting today, and then we'll move on to that, that question that I'd asked you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is so sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. 
Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and 